The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Jay Dyer is an author, comedian, and TV presenter known for his deep analysis of Hollywood, geopolitics, and culture. His graduate work focused on psychological warfare and film, and he is the author of two books, Esoteric Hollywood 1 and 2, and the co-creator and co-host of the television show Hollywood Decoder. He has been featured on numerous popular shows and podcasts and in debates with some of the world's top debaters. To find out more about Jay... Go to his website, jaysanalysis.com. That's J-A-Y-S-A-N-A-L-Y-S-I-S.com. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. How are you, brother? Doing great. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's always exciting to talk to people in Australia. I actually have a pretty big fan base in Australia, so I'm honored to be on your show. I'm sure you have a big fan base. I was looking up some of your work, checking out some of your cooking shows that you did. That's pretty interesting. Oh, thank you, brother. I'm happy to send you a couple of cookbooks. They're, they're going to be collector's items soon because apparently I've been labeled a neo-Nazi and a racist as a way to shut down. Way to eat garbage, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> shut that guy down. He's spreading good information about Ooh, healthy yep. eating. You've been looking through the matrix, so to speak, and exposing it for quite some time. And I'm fascinated because one of my great passions is the art of movie yeah. making. And the, the celebration of that medium, I, I grew up in a time where, from a very young age, Star Wars was the first film that spoke to me, and it spoke to me in a very deep and powerful way. I think I was about six or seven years of age at that point in time, and it mm. hooked me. And over the next 30, 40 years, 40 years now, wow, um, I have taken a, a deep and keen interest in the craft and art of movie making. and. Kubrick would be my number one favorite director of all time and some of the French French folk as well and um, Europeans. And I've been wanting to have a chat with you for so, so long because you dissect and decode a lot of information that has been presented through this art form, through this medium. With 2020 and 2021 being so crazy and so ridiculous, I wanted to get your take on it and, and point to 
potentially some of the clues that we've seen in films that have led us to this point and that this probably isn't any surprise for you and potentially where we're going from here and who might be pulling the, the, the strings behind it all. So over to you, brother. Feel free to speak for the next hour without taking a break. <laughs> well, that wouldn't be a very good conversation. But um, yeah, I, I've always felt the same about films. That's what I grew up with. It was the medium of, of art that I was uh, most exposed to as a kid. I grew up with, uh, well, my mom was actually into, she was an editor. So I was exposed to a lot of literature and she did her degree in lit. Uh, but I just found movies to be really fascinating. It's always the art form that I wanted to be involved in. I uh, didn't actually think that would happen for a long, long time. I'm not in movies, but you know, I've done TV work, which I didn't think I would ever do. The movies that stuck out to me back when I was getting into movies when I was a teenager uh, are the movies that kind of still stick in my head now. And so, so many of these films that told us how the world really worked was really kind of what woke me up in a roundabout way. I mean, you know, when you, when you look at movies that are kind of innocuous and even just sort of pop junk food, I guess you could say in, in terms of culture, pop, junk food culture, they even still had, you know, messages that seem to be relevant today, especially, if, you know, when you get into the nineties with, Conspiracy culture, hacking culture, a lot of what was in alternative culture in the 90s uh, was predictive of where we are now. Dystopian stuff was back in the 90s. And that kind of builds on 70s and 80s dystopia stuff that I grew up with. And so what really sticks into my mind is just conspiracy stuff, tech dystopia stuff. Um, and, and that's where we are now. When you go back and watch things like Death Race, you know, Rollerblade. Um, when you watch Omega Man, when you watch Logan's Run, when you watch so many of those 70s and 80s dystopias that, that I was, again, so fond of, I mean, it's almost like they, they brought this into play. And I know that's based on older literary works that are very important, but it's just wild to be living in what feels like a big global movie production. And the irony is that, you know, most of it, this that we're experiencing is hyped up, right? I mean, we're not really under all of this uh, end of the world kind of pandemic fear that we've been sold. Um, but that's the power of media, mass media, fiction, and so forth is to really program people. And so that's kind of what sent me down the course that I went looking into how the arts are used as propaganda and psychological warfare. And there seems to be a, a, a theme that has always permeated good against evil, right against wrong, light against dark. And take us down that journey and, and the esoteric understanding that you've come to realize and share with, with your audience and, and yourself for that, for that matter to, to keep it, to keep grounded or to keep <laughs> some sort of uh, sanity in this, yeah. what, what could very well take people out of their sane reality into something where they're completely scared of what's happening. I mean, I kind of have my own personal interest studying the history of philosophy and, and, and symbolism and alchemy and Western hermeticism and Neoplatonism, Aristotle and all that. As I was studying in college, also film and, and taking film classes and uh, classes that related to the uh, history and, and film, I took a class uh, that was on uh, Oliver Stone films. And the professor was basically just comparing the 
so what we know is the historical events to the way they're presented in in the Oliver Stone's films, and that was something that really uh, impressed me. It stuck with me. That kind of really piqued my interest in in movies and in Hollywood on a deeper level when I was uh, a freshman or sophomore in college, and uh, you know that that seemingly was disconnected for me for a long time from this study of you know esoteric stuff of, of you know hermeticism alchemy um and then i took a couple classes uh, i think it was by the time i got into grad school i had classes on elizabethan literature and what blew me away was that all of the literature the artwork in that period john dunn ben johnson everybody knows shakespeare it was all rife with alchemy. And so I started noticing this bizarre interconnection between the art world and the philosophy hermetics world, right? Which in my mind was, you know, disparate, it was disconnected. I think most of us in the West, we tend to think of everything as just sort of its own little unique box of stuff. Like if you study biology, it's over here. It's not related to anything else. If you study philosophy, that's over here. That has anything to do with anything. But actually, all these things are connected. And so making those higher level, meta level connections is always something I was interested in doing and figuring out the bigger picture. And uh, that's where philosophy and hermeticism comes in, because those are attempts at trying to get the bigger picture. Now, they're not always right. Obviously, most of the hermeticists and alchemists and whatnot are are off. But uh, what I did start noticing was that they had attempts at a grand unified approach to things. So they wanted to unify the arts. They wanted to unify the sciences. They wanted to unify the structure of the world. It was called metaphysics in one big system. That's what most of the philosophies in the West uh, or what are called hermeticism and so forth are is an attempt to have a grand unified theory of all reality and, um, well, everything, basically. Um, we don't really do that anymore because philosophy has pretty much gone downhill. Um, philosophy is in a state of rabid decay. Um, there are still universities that do, you know, schools of philosophy and whatnot. But, you know, philosophy has really been displaced from the um, primacy and honor that it had for so long. Uh, by the so-called natural sciences. So that there's just this assumption of the primacy of matter, materialism, uh, Darwinism, um, the primacy of uh, the here and the now. <laughs> there's no relevance to ancient wisdom. There's nothing that we need to learn from um, you know, philosophers. Now we just need to go to scientists. Now we just need to go to Bill Gates. Now we just need to go to you know, some uh, lab coat wearing so-called authority who's going to tell us the meaning of everything. So the irony, which actually some of the postmodernists actually co were correct about, like Foucault, was that we just really switched out our old priests for new priests, right? So it's not medieval priests anymore. It's the priest is the guy who wears the lab coat. And this is a, an excellent point that Foucault made, even though I'm not a follower of Foucault. I'm just saying he makes a great point there that postmodernism is really the critique that we want to focus on in terms of where the enlightenment, materialism, atheism, all that just really came up empty. It didn't produce the, um, the utopian uh, progressive promises that it hoped for, that it, that it claimed. And so we kind of fell into the state of decay in the arts and in philosophy. Philosophy is oftentimes you know, now classed under the, the liberal arts. So uh, all that just to say that I believe that we've really not just lost the idea of the spiritual or having a deeper sense or meaning or philosophy of life. We 
are going like fast downhill into, you know, really tyrannical nightmare situation. Things are getting dark because we don't have any grounding. We don't have any worldview from which to be grounded, to judge the true and the false, the good and the bad, the beautiful, the non-beautiful, right? Because aesthetics is actually part of philosophy as well. It's one of the branches, the domains of philosophy. So once you don't have a worldview or a paradigm, you're really just putty in the hands of um, power blocks, right? Uh, C. Wright Mills wrote a book, right? A famous book on the, the like the power dynamics of, uh, you know, socio-political relationships and, and so forth. So really, we're just tools, basically. We're not able to um, be individuals who are empowered themselves. And that's really advantageous to the system. And so the system that we're going into now, this sort of uh, dark, heavy-handed technocracy, it really wants people like that. I mean, that's the most advantageous for that kind of a person, right? For how they view the population. And, you know, if we had a sense of history, right? As Santayana says, like we wouldn't repeat it. We would know about the way Plato talks about the dangers of these elitists. I mean, actually Plato's ironic because he both promotes that elitist system as at the same time as he talks about how uh, dangerous it can be. So so that's where we are, is that uh, we are in t- we've been intentionally, I think, taken down a route of no longer being grounded and no longer having a coherent worldview from which to judge, you know, events, things, people, arguments, media, etc. Hmm. Interesting you mentioned Bill Gates because I shared an article that came out yesterday, actually, from his new book. And in Australia, they're celebrating him in all the newspapers and TV shows as the second coming of Christ or some interesting, they heap praise on this individual. And he was saying that in the future, in Western society, he wants people not to eat meat anymore and to eat only lab-grown meat. And my perception of it is he's an individual that seems to be so out of touch with nature and Mm. to the point where the respect of nature, and we are natural beings, mm-hmm. seems to, f- he seems to not even want to look at that. You know, and I, I, I use the term fake medicine, fake meat, fake climate change, and what he's attempting to do with potentially dimming the sun, and fake food as well as the ge- genetically modified. Uh, versions mm-hmm. of of these foods as well, and and it's just it it really startled me today that he is just so anti nature, and and I don't like to use the word anti anything, and I don't even like to label anybody as that because that's a, a judgment. But I was I was looking for the light in in what he is promoting, and I I, I struggled to see any. That is the irony of the technocrat is that um, they oftentimes sort of operate under this facade of um, wanting to fix the planet, help the planet, save the planet. And what what is really going on is a philosophy and attitude that is anything but. Um, and I'm sure they have some way by which they feel like they can justify that the ends justify the means. But um, yeah, I mean, this is a radical uh, attitude that is uh, anti-nature, anti-natal, anti-human, anti um whatever right anti-organic he's a huge promoter of uh uh, he he bought many many shares of monsanto long ago um he very much supports that uh 
uh, genetically modified diet uh, approach where they get rid of uh, meat, which we know, of course, uh, uh, meat is one of the best sources for nutrients. Our, our intestines are actually made such that they gain the most nutrients from meat, meat fats. Um, so I'm, I'm a big promoter and proponent of, uh, you know, keto carnivore because it helped me. I had a lot of dietary issues that probably related to, you know, stabs when I was young and I got, I got those and that probably messed up my gut and who knows what else my mind, I don't know. But, um, yes, the technocrat attitude is such that it actually relates to the esoteric stuff, whether Bill Gates has any interest in the esoteric, I don't know, but the, the, Esoteric philosophers and hermeticists, uh, many of them believe that nature is broken. And so rather than harmonizing with nature, nature needs to be dominated and fixed. And so for some of them, again, I can't speak of all esoteric philosophers, but for some of them, the idea of the great work is to perfect nature because this world was created by some sort of evil deity or something like that. It's a prison or something like that. So it has to either be destroyed uh, denigrated, um, violated, or modified such that it can, quote, be perfected. Um, I, th I think that, I mean, there, there's obviously truth to the fact that nature as it is, you know, has mutations and defects, but the idea that, like, you know, we can just throw mad science energy at it and, like, fix it, I think, is, is megalomaniacal. This is a, a literary archetype, right? I mean, we have this archetype in literature of the crazy mad scientist, right? The Dr. Frankenstein type of thing. So, you know, we have this this uh, warning from history and from literature that you can't, you know, tamper in God's domain, so to speak, and try to uh, fix, quote unquote, nature by these means. It just un unleashes. And I, I think that that's that's the thing here is that this can unleash unleash a Pandora's box. And, you know, it's hard to to decipher whether these people are just motivated by um what they perceive to be uh, a solution to saving the planet, which is just false or like literal um, evil, right? Do they actually, uh, you know, self-consciously will and, and, and want to, to do things that are viewed as evil just for uh, just pure power. Uh, it's hard to know exactly, but um, I have read, you know, pretty extensively about um, the Gates foundation and, and his history and, and, Terminator Seeds and all that. There's a great book by F. William Ingdahl about uh, um, Gates's history in terms of uh, genetically modified seeds, seeds of death. Um, it even has a seed vault in, I think, Antarctica where he's got all of the, you know, uh, GMO-free seeds that he saved, by which I assume that he's intending to propagate the genetically modified ones everywhere else. But I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I know he has been involved in some of that, but pretty much any mad science thing that you can think of, you can pretty easily find him. You know, geoengineering. I was, I remember wrote about uh, geoengineering many, many years ago, and I got called crazy, and and I was, you know, it was kind of surprising to me because you could go to the Royal Society's website and see all of their published papers. Stanford's uh, very low frequency research group had all of their papers public about um, geoengineering, stratospheric spraying, atmospheric spraying. Uh, so it's all public, but you, you know, people just wouldn't believe it even though it was right there. So uh, I knew that Bill Gates, I put a whole chapter in fact in my last book about this, this stuff going on. I think I even mentioned Bill Gates, but yeah, it's just, it's just, bizarre but it shows that that's how worldviews work right i mean we can we the way that we interpret the world and act in the world is based on our basic philosophical presuppositions 
And you can see that with a person who is a mad scientist, just as much as a person who. You said before, it feels like we're living in a movie. Are we? <laughs> is, is this a simulation? <laughs> Things get so ridiculous at times that I start to wonder, like, are we really in? <laughs> I mean, I don't actually believe that we're in a simulation, but I understand why people think that perhaps we live in a simulation. I mean, I think that metaphysically there are there are things about the way the world is structured. Uh, for example, if you, if you were a fan of Plato, if you read a lot of Plato, you know that that's more or less kind of Plato's view is that we live in a kind of a simulation. And although I don't really think that that's the case, I think that the world is made in such a way that it can uh, suggest or give the impression that it's a kind of a structured type of simulation. But um, that's just a model. It's just a theory. Um, I mean, I do think the world's created, but um, I can see why people think that. But, yeah, and, and, and the crazier things get, <clears throat> you can start to see why a lot of the ancient philosophers just sort of thought, you know, that maybe this is an illusion, right? I mean, this shit's so crazy. <laughs> this is just maybe an illusion. 2021, in relation to the work that you've you've studied, and what we've just witnessed over the last year, do you believe that this was and has been something we've had to go through collectively and witness and be participants in for our own hero's journey collectively? Well, yeah, that's an interesting uh take uh it's always darkest before the dawn i do think there is a noetic or spiritual realm where we do experience the you could even say the spirit of the time uh and so in a sense yes i think that i mean we're not i don't believe that we're all one i mean i think that there is a unitive aspect that we all share with one another and with all reality and there's also a reality to uh, our distinctiveness and our individuality so for me both of those things are true in philosophy, the history of philosophy, that's called the problem of the one, the many. So I think that both unity and particularity exist at the same time. And so on the level of the mental realm, the psych psychic realm, uh, spiritual realm, as some might call it, yes, I think that we do go through these kind of ages or eras or aeons or um, testing periods or, you know, zeitgeist is the best word, I guess, you could to, to use. I don't mean zeitgeist to film. I just mean the the German spirit of the age. So, uh, yes, I would say that uh, it probably is the case that we are being put through a period of chastisement or dark times that definitely do uh, produce spiritual maturity. Um, you know, I, I mean, I hope it doesn't get that bad, but it makes me think back to like my grandparents' stories of the depression. Um, I mean, I don't know that we're going to have a situation as bad as the Great Depression, but it's it's very likely that we could have a global depression given, you know, the high amounts of debt and the type of um, economic stuff that the Davos crowd is pushing for, right? This sort of extreme um, technocratic version of socialism or communism where everything's delivered to you by drones and you don't own anything, it's the circular economy. It's very possible that that could lead to a, a global depression. And, and so in that sense, yes, it's, it just reminds me of the way that if you talk to, you know, your, your grandparents, the way that they would, well, I, I don't know, but I don't know what the economics of uh, uh, your country were in the depression, but 
But here, everybody's grandparents have this story, right? They always tell a story about, oh, it was crazy. We thought that if we had soup, it was you know, like a great thing. If, if we had dessert, you know, once a month, it was, you know, they'd have all these kind of stories like this, right? Every grandparent has it. My Jamie's in there laughing. I don't know what she's laughing at, but every grandparent has one of these depression stories. So um, anyway, go ahead. I'm, I'm rambling. <laughs> well, I was, I, I wanted to, to get dive into the hero's journey a little bit more with you about why this is such a, a recurrent theme and such a powerful theme, whether it in works of literature as well as films, but also in our own existence. And you know, I've journeyed a little bit through this existence and I would say I've I've traveled through the realms of my own hero's journey and perhaps uh-huh. I'm about to step through another one, as we all seem to do. But why is it so important do you believe that the hero's journey is it necessary for each and every one of us to go through this period on our own hero's journey? And if we don't face up, what happens? It makes me think about, um, you know, one thing I learned back in my 20s, I was, I was really into activism and trying to wake people up to, you know, the way things are, the global lead, this kind of stuff. And I would always encounter resistance. And I couldn't figure that out because I was, uh, I had a very idealistic view in my early 20s and felt like it was my duty to kind of get everybody to agree to every single thing that I had had studied and become convinced of. And then after a while, you start to realize something that's kind of the point of uh, Plato's apology, which is that a lot of people, either one, aren't ready to to wake up or uh, literally do not want to be awakened. And in fact, they will um, try to get rid of you. Right. And this is I'm not saying this. I'm saying that this is the message of the apology is that eventually uh, you know, Socrates has to go on trial for um, critiquing the society as it is, for c- critiquing the the uh, the um, the fact that the Athenians were asleep, and that's the point of the allegory of the cave. Of course, that he's trying to wake them up, and then they don't want to be awakened, and so he's there to ready ready to uh, be uh, stoned by the city or poisoned, put to death by the hemlock because. Uh, because he's tried to wake people up and he's asked difficult questions. I mean, all of us who, uh, you know, are critical of the existing, you know, world structure, Davos system, the elites, et cetera, the technocracy, we're really much like uh, Socrates because that's what Socrates did is that he went around and he, all he did was ask questions and he went to different people with different stations in life. He asked the artisan, he asked the politician, he asked different people uh, in in Athens, what is going on and why do they think that they know truth and know what's really going on? And none of them have good answers. They're all wrong. And all he does is show this by that sort of uh, what's called a linktic method of Q&A. He just asks questions. So merely asking questions is actually what got Socrates put to death by the government. And it's just a great parallel to anybody who would try to be or speak out in the sense of that hero's journey, because you know early on, you know it's it's tough. Um, people are very uh, resistant, but it, you just have to be patient and keep at it. it. takes It takes time. I never would have thought I've been able to reach as many people as I have, just kind of playing around and being silly, doing what I do. But uh, nevertheless, here we are. And so that is an, and the philosopher's hero journey is what you see in, for example, somebody like Socrates. So um, you know, it's like Nietzsche says, uh, you know. I know this is a cliche, it's overused, but it really is true. If you've read Nietzsche, he's, he would definitely agree that, you know, there's no valor without the battle, right? You, you can't, uh, you don't, you don't even, it's, it's sort of like if you worked 
for your living and made a lot of money, you appreciate that a lot more than if it was just given to you, right? So the the struggle is part of the uh, the journey. It's part of the victory. It's part of the the enjoyment. And so, how could you be a hero without the battle? I mean, I, I don't see how that would even be possible. So, unfortunately, yes, we are in a situation where um, we're going to be taught virtue for sure, the hard way. Hmm. I don't know whether we're going to get into this now, but it feels like the right time. Let's talk about some must-watches. If you if you had your top ten or top five or even just one film that you would, for anybody that perhaps, as you said, is asleep, <laughs> what is the one film that potentially could yeah wake somebody up or a few of them? You know, I, 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 I go back and forth on this question because sometimes I feel like there's a movie that is – the perfect movie for uh, illustrating one area or strata of society or reality, right? Like Eyes Wide Shut could show you how the elite manipulate people and hide their power, the means at their disposal, right? Um, The connection to Hollywood, to money, cults. But then, you know, Eyes Wide Shut is really not about anything more than that. So even that's kind of a limited thing. And other shows or other uh, pieces of art, I think Twin Peaks is one of the more illustrious, as kind of funny and silly and satirical as it is, it actually is about uh, spiritual realities. It's about the demonic. It's about how society is actually run. Uh, so that's a great one. I, I kind of come back to those those classics, the, the just ones that I love. I mean, there's you know Kubrick films that are very insightful obviously not just eyes wide shut but uh i go back and forth on what i think about 2001 sometimes i like it sometimes i don't <laughs> i mean uh, i mean obviously i appreciate elements of it but uh as i get older i like it less than i used to mm. speaking about kubrick, kubrick it's the, one of my favorite films of all time mm. i mean he's my favorite director of all time but uh favorite film one of them is yep. clockwork orange and that scene where alex has his eyes permanently yeah. open and and being shown his you know there's no escape from from what's coming or what, what he's seen on the screen and that <laughs> you know it, it has so much relevance i think now it's like to wake up and I, I still don't like using that terminology because we all have free will and we'll mm-hmm, come to mm-hmm. our own decisions at the, at the right time and a couple other uh uh ones that I think really stand now, obviously the Godfather trilogy, because you have the intersection of religion, uh, corruption in the Roman Catholic church, the, how the mafia and cartel system works, how it relates to the political realm. Um, and so that's just a great test case and understanding what a lot of people, the irony is that a lot of people watch and love mafia movies, or they watch and love spy movies, but they don't know anything about the espionage world or the the true crime world of, or, or the study of elite criminality. And if you don't know or understand elite criminality, it's going to be almost impossible for anyone to understand how our world really works. Because unfortunately, elite criminality is what makes the world go round, right? I mean, this whole world system is built on lies in, in terms of money, the monetary system, Fiat, debt, usury. I mean, all that stuff is just a way to entrap and enslave people and not just individuals, but whole countries getting into debt. The IMF system that then buys off the countries when they 
have rigged uh, boom bust cycle crashes. And so the, you just can't pass up the Godfather. And the Godfather even gets into a little bit at times that more esoteric element, because in the third installment, uh, you have the assassination of the Pope. Uh, and that actually occurred when the P2 uh, Lodge assassinated John Paul I, or they were at least involved in that assassination uh, in the, the late 70s. Uh, he was only Pope for 33 days. And so there we see the, the connections between uh, you know, elite international crime syndicates and, you know, the Roman Catholic Church. So that, that one's important to to just see how the world really works. Um, they Live is, of course, a classic B-movie that is, I think, very illustrative for, if you, if you wanted to wake people up to just like kind of like basic level conspiracy stuff, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, it's fun, it's silly, it's cheesy, uh, but it's pretty much accurate. I mean, what it's talking about is, is, how the world really is working, especially in terms of media, right? Because that movie is kind of a critique of media because it's like this the media signal, right? That's blasted out. Which one is this? They Live, the John Carpenter film, They Live. Uh, you know, it's all about seeing through the media, right? So um, I haven't really mentioned... I mean, obviously, something like Metropolis, uh, the Matrix trilogy, obviously, those are kind of played out. But I mean, they are relevant, especially for where we're going in terms of the tech side of the dystopia. Um, so, yeah, I would say that, that those are some of the ones that come to mind that kind of just span the whole domain of man's, you know, spectrum, right? Religion, um, economics technology dystopia social engineering um there's other, some really good spy movies too that illustrate how the world really works uh you could watch three days of the condor uh, the robert redford film um corruption in the intelligence agencies this kind of stuff because that's important to know about the world too i often ask uh, the guests on their podcast for solutions and uh, what do they foresee the solutions to be and, and over the last 12 months since the coronavirus, I've noticed that and I've had some pretty amazing people that have created some wonderful works of art, such as documentaries, come up and these documentaries have gone viral, you know, which is, which is fantastic. Myself and my team, we've made two documentaries, one on the power of food, as you mentioned before, called The Magic Pill, and then one on cannabis called The Magic Plant. And we were making a docu-series about psychedelics and the understanding or the power of these powerful plants and animals in which we can have a glimpse or experience greater states of consciousness and potentially learning the, the life lessons of going through our hero's journeys in these experiences. So... What do you see as the solution or solutions moving forward and what part can we play in creating a, a, a more beautiful world instead of heading towards the, uh, the iceberg, so to speak? Well, from my view, there are um, temp temporal uh, things that we can do and then there's more spiritual things that we can do. So in the temporal realm, I, I would say uh, solutions involve, number one, what I try to do is educate people. Um, my work is mainly... Um, educationally focused. So what I kind of do is read the big fat writings of the elite that nobody else has time to read. <laughs> it's too boring. It's too technical. So basically I'm a glorified nerd. I do people's homework for them, right? So they pay me $5 a month to read these gigantic books 
and you learn what the elite learn, right? So these are books typically published, you know, for people who graduate from the Ivy League schools and go into, you know, uh, get PhDs in international relations and whatnot. So I read those really boring tomes and I, I summarize that. That's kind of the uh, major thrust of what I do now. I do still do a lot of film reviews and, and Hollywood stuff too, but um, that's kind of what I've, I've been focusing on a lot lately. And so education is one thing that I'm very involved in. Uh, number two, um, economically, I've, I've gradually warmed up more and more since 2017 to crypto. I think that there's a lot of potential. Again, nothing is a perfect silver bullet, but uh, I've become a big pro a proponent and fan of Bitcoin. I think that's a great way for people economically to have the best bet of hedging against um, the effects of where we are in the Great Reset and the, sh the shutdowns and how it's hurting people economically. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of um, uh, not all cryptos, obviously, but uh, the bigger ones, I think they're, they're safe bets. Obviously, gold and silver, too, can help people hedge against this kind of stuff, but they haven't performed that well in the last year. But um, I'm not really into stocks, so I can't speak to the stock market or anything like that. But um, uh, in terms of um, thought, our thought processes, I think it's good to read as much as you can. Get in the habit and process of reading. Um, most people nowadays don't read. They don't. I mean, I mean, actual, you know, thick book reading, <laughs> consistently reading books is a very necessary thing. Um, learning uh, something like the fallacy, the, the basic logical fallacies. Most people don't know the logical fallacies, and this is very important for not just like if you know, not everybody's going to be doing debates like I do with with people all the time, but just in terms of like if you're running a business or if you're out there in the world and you're being subjected to you know mass media propaganda, political propaganda. One thing that knowing basic logic and knowing the fallacies can help you do is not be duped, right? Because you'll notice that advertising politicians, they often will use fallacies, logical fallacies, to try to convince people of things that are not wise or rational decisions, right? I mean, this is the really the whole basis of advertising is just kind of appealing to, um, you know, the immediate moment, right? Immediate gratification. So, um, that's a very helpful thing. And then spiritually speaking, uh, I think that it's good to, at least personally, my wife and I, we've moved into uh, Orthodox Christianity. So I'm a proponent of that. I think that's the authentic, uh, mystical experience of Christianity from the earliest days of the church. Uh, so I'm, I'm not a fan of, you know, the Roman Catholicism or the papacy or that kind of stuff. But I still think that the um, grandeur, the aesthetics, the, the the structure that's there in orthodoxy speaks to uh, something historic and traditional um, that I find lacking in a lot of modern, um, you know, churches and religious groups. Um, very leery of anything that's like a cult uh, guru type of thing. So um, those are those are the areas that I typically talk about for solutions. Mm, I'd love to finish off with um, leaders. Do we need them? Is that an illusion? What's your take on leadership? And how does it manifest in a way that can't be corruptible or corrupted? I kind of agree with the, the principle that in nature there is hierarchy. Um, it can't really be eliminated or gotten rid of. Um, it's always going to be there. It's just a natural thing. It's stamped into the very being of the world of, of animals, of, of humans. We are at least partly animal, biologically speaking. I think we have a higher spiritual component as well as human beings, but we're also 
biological. And so there is a, just a natural sort of structure and hierarchy that's in that's in the world. And so it just that's just always going to there's always going to be leaders. Absolutely. But whether those leaders are virtuous or wicked is a different question. And this is where, you know, philosophers this is where Aristotle can come into play because he has a very good philosophical um, analysis of this, of, of um, how the leader can flourish and therefore, therefore uh, bless, you know, the, the polis, the society of which and in which he is a leader. So, but the leader has to be confirmed in virtue. Uh, he has to be, uh, I mean, this may be controversial, but uh, this is Aristotle's idea is that uh, the leader has to be well-bred. Um, he has to, to be brought up well, um, he has to have good character. Um, otherwise, you're going to get a tyrant. Uh, so it might, it would be cool if we could have a world where there aren't leaders. But I just don't think of, you know, since man is partly a biological being, you're never going to get a world where there's not that biological hierarchy. Mm, interesting. We've got uh, three horses and we just had our, our latest one join the herd and uh, watching them play out their leadership role. On it. Oh, really? And it's on a it's it's on a daily basis, yeah, right. And it's fascinating to witness, you know, that even in that that small st structure, that there is this ongoing jockeying, so to speak, of the mm. pecking order. But obviously, that that happens in nature when they would have been wild. You know, there would have been a right. leader that would have been the protector. There would have been, you know, the jostling for who got to mate with whoever, you know, in, in certain species where, where that happens. And you know, I'm I'm constantly going back to the start of this conversation, looking at nature for not only inspiration but clues and guidance in yeah. which way to keep moving forward. And one of the most beautiful things I witness here on our farm is the interplay between the wild bird life. And we have kookaburras that, that were singing before. We've got the crows. We've got the swallows. We have the water birds. We have all these different types of birds that can co-inhabit an area very harmoniously with different physical and, and very uh, different, I guess, uh, ways of living. And it's, uh, it, it, it always gives me great, hope that we as humans can coexist without these power struggles and without and and basically being able to laugh and sing and dance and play and hunt and do all the things that these amazing well i didn't mean i forgot to say too part of the uh solution i think is getting out of like giant cities and getting more in in tune with nature definitely we we moved out of a uh, city areas and into more rural areas uh recently so um that's i mean yeah, the more self-sufficient that you can be that's definitely much better um mm -hmm. many of my, my friends are you know they do, they do homesteading uh, my buddy tristan he moved down to uh ecuador and he has kind of a self-sustaining thing there in ecuador so he left california for ecuador to, to build basically his own <laughs> little uh community there and uh i think that's definitely a better approach i meant that i forgot to mention by the way mm. and i think it all comes back to being able to fr be free freedom to yeah. express our innate nature of creative expression and love and understanding and harmony 
And Jay, I just want to thank you for making yourself available today. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and hopefully we can uh, pick up this another time down the track. And I just want to tell you, I love you and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your take on the world today. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.